0: Doing this thing. I have come to my garden, my sister, my bride. I have gathered my myrrh and my spices. I have eaten my honeycomb with my honey. I have drunk my wine and my milk. Eat, dear friends, drink and get drunk on love. I was sleeping, but my heart was awake, a sound, my love is knocking. Open for me, my sister, my dearest, my dove, my perfect one. My head is soaked with dew, my hair with the night mist. I have taken off my tunic, why should I put it on again? I have bathed my feet, why should I get them dirty? My love put his hand in through the latch hole and my body ached for him. I rose, I went to open, for my love, and my hands dripped myrrh, my fingers liquid myrrh over the handles of the lock. Amen.
1: Good morning, everyone. My name is Jonah. My pronouns are they, them, theirs, and I'm one of your pastors here at Zao. And welcome to church! <laughs> I feel like the scriptures should just pause to have that, like, wide-faced, red-eyed, embarrassed emoji after that. like. <laughs> but the scriptures are actually not very self-conscious about sex and talk about it quite a bit. So I'm just really pleased because it's the, it's the time of the year... Post-pride, we have our fans. So if you're feeling scandalized at all, you can just (laughs) fan yourself. But we are, as Cameron mentioned, in our series that we've called Pure Trash, putting purity culture where it belongs. You see, we've been taught a lot of really horrific things about sex in the church. We've been given frameworks of patriarchy and shame, And those things have been used to control people, control bodies, especially women and people assigned female at birth. Now, the purity culture that we, so many of us, were raised in or at least impacted by in broader culture claims that it's biblical, right? But then you've got in this big, wild Bible a whole lot going on, including the Song of Songs, Now, the Song of Songs is an entire book of erotic poetry, and it is in the scriptures. Some of it can be hard to parse, right? Like, this is like reading Shakespeare in high school next to, like, a key that's like, this is what all of this means. If we don't know some of the slang or some of the metaphors, it's because we're culturally removed, but it doesn't make them any less steamy. So, for instance, in the scriptures, uh, feet... She says, why should I get my feet dirty? I've bathed them. Feet are slang for genitalia. Uh Uh-huh. This gives really new and different meaning in the Ruth and Naomi story when Ruth uncovered Boaz's feet and laid by them till morning. Right? We have art that seems to depict like a very demure Ruth just like at the literal bare feet of a man, Boaz. Um, that's not what they're describing in the scriptures. <laughs> in, this, uh, in this erotic poem in Song of Songs, it says, I compare you, my love, the young man says, to a mare among the Pharaoh's chariot. What does that mean? <laughs> well, it turns out that in that day, one of the, the standard kind of military practices was to release a, a mare in heat among the like military stallions as a distraction because they would be driven wild by this horse in heat, so distracted by the attractive power of this horse. These are sexual metaphors. And again, the last thing that might throw you off is the use of the word sister. Again, that is a cultural thing. It is not a literal sister thing. And if it bums you out or freaks you out, I just want to direct you to the words poppy and daddy, uh, mommy, and say, like, we all got family stuff around it. We can unpack that at another time. (laughs) But make no mistake, this is a book about sex. The young man says to his lover, open for me, my dearest love. She describes, my love put his hand through the latch hole, and my body ached for him. Elsewhere, she is speaking of her partner's tree. With great delight, I sat in his shadow, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. This is graphic, y'all. It's beautiful and it's poetry and it's winking and it's metaphors, but it is not subtle. And it only comes across that way to readers who don't have enough context or imagination to get on board. But what is the sex that's taking place in this part of the Bible? Remarkably, it is pleasure for the sake of pleasure. And in contrast to what we have been taught by purity culture and patriarchy, the pleasure of the young woman in this couple of a young man and a young woman is centered. It is mutual pleasure to be sure, but it focuses on her and her pleasure, her perspective first and foremost. She's the main narrator, she gets the first and last word here, and she is the character in this book with the most agency. Now you might be thinking, sure, it's all well and good, this young married couple is exploring their bodies, that's what the church told us to do, but wait, they're unmarried. These people are not married to one another, they in fact live apart. Her brothers try to stop her, try to keep her inside, they're trying to keep her pure, right, that's what um, the men of the church have been tasked with doing, she defies them. She goes out, she actually is confronted again by more men, the city guards, who actually confront her with violence. But she goes to the women in her community for support, named here as the Daughters of Jerusalem. They urge her on, ask her to share details, the things that delight her, and then they reunite her with her lover again in a garden. In the book Unprotected Texts, The Bible's Surprising Contradictions About Sex and Desire by Jennifer Wright Nust. She writes, Daughters and mothers cheer the lovers on. By contrast, a series of meddling, violent men interrupt the woman's pursuit of desire, attempting to exercise control over her, though in the end, their efforts are futile. She goes on, The poem rejects the view that men can or should control women. It also displays no interest whatsoever in defending marriage as the only appropriate setting for love. These lovers pursue their love urgently without consulting the wishes of others. Marriage is beside the point. So you may be wondering, like, how did this get in the Bible? (laughs) Actually, it's been around for a really long time. It was in the Dead Sea Scrolls, one of the most highly revered and protected texts that eventually became canonical in the Christian scriptures. But it was highly contested. There were a lot of people super freaked out at this account of erotic poetry in the holy scriptures. Origin of Alexandria said, don't read it at all unless you're like in a super pure place because you could be led astray. How often do you hear that? How often have you been given the warning, don't read scripture unless you're like really prepared for it? You might hear that here, actually. But it feels unusual to hear it around these other spaces. Other men over the centuries, Augustine among them, reinterpreted it all as allegory, usually relating the man, the young man, to Christ, and the young woman to the church. Her teeth are the men of the church who bite and tear sinners away from their errors. The pools of her eyes represent the wisdom of male sages who sit at the gates of the city. Her long, beautiful neck is the upright men who are teachers of the law. (laughs) Points for creativity. not saying that there aren't layers of meaning in the scripture because we talk about that a lot here right it can actually mean all of those things and those things can bring us closer to God and those things can be celebrated but we have to pay attention as well to the patterns of how scripture gets interpreted and taught right and so when those are the interpretations that are taught against the interpretation of an empowered young woman engaging in sexual intimacy with her young unmarried partner we should notice that We should observe the choices that are being made there. And Nüst notes that in all of these allegories, they replace the woman and images of the young woman with a man, men, or male-dominated institutions. And having done that, that reinterpreted book became a very important book of the Bible, validating the holiness of men and religious authority and the union between those men and God. Nust also hints at the irony that if God is interpreted to be male and the church is represented as male and male-led, and erotic poetry is a stand-in for understanding their relationship, then the allegory is actually about gay sex. (laughs) Now, we spoke last week about some of the mystics, including um, some of the women mystics who interpreted their spiritual ecstasy through sexual language to describe the undescribable encounter with God. Men did that also. Bernard of Clairvaux said, if anyone has received this mystical kiss from the mouth of Christ even one time, he seeks again the intimate experience and repeats it willingly. And this is where we see what has been given permission that there have been places even among conservative patriarchal church leadership where this poem has inspired people into gender bending and sexuality role-defying images and understandings of the intimacy with God. But all of this feels very confusing, doesn't it? I mean, like, biblical sexual accounts are all over the place. This one is a clear celebration. There is judgment in it, and that judgment is that this young woman is awesome, that this connection is beautiful, that the structures and authorities that are trying to keep them apart are wrong and violent. But there are other descriptions of violence or abuse in a sexual context with no particular moral judgment in the text at all. And sometimes there can be moral judgments that feel strange without more context. One of the ones that I find most fascinating, the way that it gets parsed or, or put into pieces and reinterpreted without context is, is Tamar. So Tamar poses as an anonymous sex worker to seduce her father-in-law, and she is first threatened with execution, and then she's called righteous. And that can be really, really confusing, and that's not even the part that gets taken out of context. The context here is that Tamar... Uh, A woman in, in the community is married to one of Judah's sons, and Judah's son died. Now Judah then, by law, owed Tamar financial security through an heir, because with her husband deceased, a widow, we hear a lot about widows in the scriptures, right, because they're vulnerable. And so Judah owed Tamar some financial stability, and the way to get that in his culture would have been through getting a male heir. The way that that goes is that she has to become pregnant by one of her deceased husband's brothers. Are we already getting into like weird sexual ethics territory here? It's complicated. And so, that is what's considered righteous. And through a series of events, Tamar ends up with one of Judah's sons, Onan. Does anybody have any associations with the word Onan? All right, great, we'll wait. So Onan, Onan lays with Tamar and rather than kind of consummating this experience, rather than participating in reproductive sex uh, to to impregnate Tamar, Onan spills his seed on the ground. Anybody have associations with spilling seed on the ground? Now we're getting closer. So in the context of this, what's happening is that Onan doesn't want to be financially tied to Tamar. And so he, while they are intimate, pulls out and and prevents their act from resulting in pregnancy. Now, Tamar is still in trouble financially and in security for her life. And so what she ends up doing is posing as a sex worker to trick Judah into having sex with her and giving her an heir. Now when she becomes pregnant, he is furious until she proves that it is his. And then he admits, you are more righteous than I am. You were right. Now, that is a whole lot of weird moral complications in a story about sex. So why is that story almost always taught as a lesson on why masturbation is evil? Did anyone get that from the story? Like, where is that coming from? But that phrase, spill your seed on the ground, and the way that the scripture describes that being displeasing to God, is then linked to sexuality in a way completely devoid from the context of this story. And it is extracted by the use of people in power to alienate people, especially young people, from their bodies. Now, the other text that often gets associated with this is the one that we unpacked two weeks ago, where Jesus is in the Sermon on the Mount reinterpreting the property law associated with adultery. And he says to men, men, if you even... Commit adultery in your heart. If you even lust after a woman in your heart, you have committed adultery. And what that does, and you can go back a couple weeks if you want to get deep, deeper into this, but like what that does is actually shift responsibility. That's about shifting responsibility for adultery from solely the women who had been charged in previous contexts to the men and saying you actually are responsible. And it is not women's responsibility to protect themselves and you from you sexualizing them. If you objectify women, it's on you. That is what that teaching is about. And then we have the Song of Songs, which we are in today, which describes a young woman thinking of and longing for her lover, describing before he arrives how her hands dripped with myrrh, her fingers liquid myrrh over the handles of the lock, which, without getting nearly as graphic as the Bible does, is clearly a description of her own self-pleasure while thinking about her partner. Now, Neuss makes the point that all of these scriptures culminate and come together to form a Bible that is actually quite difficult to parse, that has a lot of conflicting information. She writes, according to Song of Songs, a beautiful girl who enjoys making love can fulfill her desires outside of marriage and still be honored both by God and by her larger community. Sex is a good thing, and sexual desire is a blessing, not an embarrassment. And you have to hold that alongside the texts that are extremely neutral towards sex work, so long as it's sex work with a foreigner and not with, like, an upstanding Israelite woman. You have to put that alongside the texts we talked about two weeks ago in Exodus and Deuteronomy that have been interpreted to treat sex as a matter of property law and completely objectify women as property of men. And then you put that alongside the implications from Paul that the most holy thing to do is never have sex at all and that marriage is a concession to human desire and a distraction. (laughs) Sex in the Bible is complicated and conflicting, like most topics in our scriptures, which means that we, as a community, must make choices about how to interpret and teach. How to interpret, that's our hermeneutics. I'm going to give you some, some big old seminary words here. How we interpret, that's our hermeneutics. How we teach, that's pedagogy. These are choices that we make. And that means that they made pedagogical choices when they chose to teach you about Jezebel and not about Ruth. They made hermeneutical choices when they looked at the story of Tamar and Onan and Judah and decided to make it about masturbation and not about justice and economic equity for vulnerable women. We need to re-examine these stories with a new lens and ask why we've never heard the erotic poetry in the Bible or else Why? It was always described as something other than what it is. A poem from the perspective of a beautiful, young, explicitly dark-skinned woman seeking pleasure from her own body with and without the lover to whom she is not married. So how does this reading change how we think about sex and how we think about sex from a biblical perspective? Well, first of all, it puts casual sex casual relationships or sex outside of marriage and masturbation all back on the table as biblical and potentially holy. That alone is an absolute game changer. Am I right? Like, contend with that, youth group pastors. (laughs) We'll talk next week about how to build an intentionally biblical sexual ethic that includes those things. Because that's our ultimate goal here, right? We don't want to just tear down what we've been taught. We want to build up. We want to find out how we can engage with our bodies in a way that is ethical, that is loving, that is Christ-like, that is sexy. And we're going to do that next week. Wish me luck. (laughs) But it doesn't stop there, this reorientation to sex. What is sex? Well, here, sex is for pleasure, the end. It's about intimate connection and the joy of bodies, the pleasure of being close to one to whom you are attracted. And this completely defies the heteronormative idea of sex merely for reproduction. A bunch of what they're doing is not going to get them a baby. (laughs) It's clearly sex, though. So why has sex in the Christian church become reduced to one specific act that could result in pregnancy? It seems like that's the only kind of sex that counts, and the rest of it doesn't, which is what leads many Christian teenagers to become very creative about their sex and sexuality in order to preserve their so-called virginity. But like, we know that sex is more than a reproductive act. And if we follow the logic of reproductive sex as the only legitimate sex, then frankly, I know a lot of really sexy queer virgins or at least people who have been celibate for years. (laughs) (laughs) But the thing is, the church will concede that there is more to sex when they want to condemn queer sexuality, right? Otherwise, what are we doing wrong, guys? According to the way they teach presumably straight teenagers, queer sex mostly doesn't exist. And yet even for straight folks, people who do desire sexual contact generally long for something more than the highly specific mechanics of reproduction. Sex is about connection, physical intimacy. And I would challenge you to think hard about what sex actually is to you. Sex is the electric energy between two bodies that desire each other's delight. Sex is the connection which is not just emotional or spiritual, but it's physical in a way that is unique. Sex is hard to pin down. In the 1960s, the Supreme Court was ruling on obscenity. Justice Potter Stewart said, I know it when I see it, but refused to define it any other way. Because there is no one way to define sex, sexuality, or sexual connection. You know it when you feel it. And there are plenty of things that people can do that could be very sexual or very not, depending on context and relationship. Holding hands, hugging, a kiss on the cheek, prolonged eye contact. These things are relationship dependent, context dependent, and there is a way for them to be holy, and there is a way for them to be unbound by the norms and mores that we have been given by conservative Christian church. These things are not defined in the same ways that we want to in the list of don'ts that we were given as teenagers. Even if we want to constrain sex to a list of do's and don'ts, where do you draw the line? If prolonged eye contact can be sexual, if holding hands can be electric, if making out with someone can be all manner of connecting or not connecting, then those lists of do's and don'ts the conversation about bikini areas and what to say for marriage, they sort of become pretty useless when we really, really are honest about what sexual connection actually is. Like everything else in scripture, good sex is about right relationship. It is about connection in a way that honors all involved. It is about what brings joy, pleasure, liberation and justice to individuals, to communities, and to the world. Sex is neither forbidden nor mandated. And this is really important, y'all, because somehow we ended up with both of those lies. We were told it is forbidden for those unmarried, but we are compelled to get married, and once married, we are mandated to have sex and want sex. All of that, all of that is a lie. All of that is cultural baggage. All of that is patriarchal nonsense. All of that alienates us from our bodies and what we actually do and don't desire. God does not forbid you to have sex outside of marriage. The Song of Songs describes beautifully one couple's encounter with holy and pleasurable sex. God does not compel you to get married or partnered. Paul wasn't kidding when he said he thought it was a distraction. And God absolutely blesses people who are not married or partnered Maybe ever. And God does not mandate that you have or desire sex. Whether you are married or single, God cares about your desires and lack of desires. God cares about your consent and your consent is partly about what you want. If you don't want to have sex, don't have sex. If you are not finding pleasure in sex or the pursuit of sex, don't do it. Just like the men of the poem seeking to control the narrator's body, The men of the church have told us all what our bodies are for, who decides what we want, and when. But this biblical text, it sees the holiness of the young woman taking her agency back, asking herself what she wants, asking her partner what he wants, finding a way to be mutually connected in honor and consent and in love. She wants sex, so she has it in a way that brings her pleasure and intimate joy, a holy connection. And if you don't want sex, that is holy and good too. Find other ways to pursue pleasure and intimate joy, holy connections. These things are blessed by God. God wants you to have good things. I promised you I'd remind you every sermon this series God wants you to have good things. And God does not dictate what those things are. God gives permission to explore our delight and our desires. God only mandates that we protect one another from harm, as the daughters of Jerusalem did, that we dismantle systems of domination that control or coerce, and that we do all of these things from a place of love. Let us be bold like the young woman. Let us protect one another like the daughters of Jerusalem And let us delight in our bodies, together and apart, like the young lovers. Will you pray with me? Good and holy God, you gave us wild, uncontained spirits and bodies. God, allow us the freedom to explore the gift that you have given us. Bless the connections we have with one another and ourselves. God, may we pursue your commandment to love ourselves, our neighbors, and you, and may you lead us into a holy sexuality, a community ethic, a way of being in our bodies that is holy, that is good, that is sexual when we desire it, and that is free from shame, control, or coercion. God, you are good and we see your goodness in the boldness of these two young lovers and the poetry that describes their connection. May we all be blessed and may we all be drawn in towards love and intimacy. Amen.